Welcome to the Legal Merry-Go-Round, where you can learn to avoid the downs and savor the ups. Here, 40-year veteran attorney Paul Samico will entertain you and help you understand the law in areas we might all face. Brushes with the police? Oh boy. Family disputes? Oh no. An injury and accident situations? Ouch. And now, here's Paul. Good day. Good day to you. And welcome to the Legal Merry-Go-Round, where I always want to encourage you to avoid the downs and savor the ups. That's right. Not just in the law, because who knows if and when you're going to have entanglements or involvement with the law. And I hope if you do, it's only for good stuff. But in everyday life, avoid the downs. You don't need the negative energy and the baggage of the downs in life. And savor the ups. That's right. There's joy and excitement and pleasure to be derived from all the wonderful things that may happen to you in the course of a day. So take a moment and, as the expression goes, smell the roses. Today, as you know, if you've been following my show, which I hope you have been, Today is Fender Bender Friday, and that is the show that I do, aha, on Fridays, which has to do with compensation for people who have been injured. The Fender Bender, of course, is a reference to a car crash, but this case uh, today, this show today, is not about car crashes. It's about student athletes who have been injured due to, well, we're going to find out because I have a lot of examples. Before I get started today, I do want to give a shout out to my sponsor, the Legal Writing Launch. LegalWritingLaunch.com is where you go to sign up to learn how to do efficient and clear and concise legal writing. Now, you say, why would I want to be writing legally? Yeah. Well, okay, I'm going to give a plug to us lawyers. Our goal in life is to communicate, to communicate properly, efficiently, and even persuasively. That's all we have is our ability to communicate. Some of us do it well, some of us, eh, not so much. But to have a legal writing class to teach you how to do it can not just improve your writing skills, but can actually improve your clarity of thought. So the professor, a woman who is extraordinarily accomplished by the name of Bev Myers, she's a law professor out in the Bay Area, San Francisco. She actually used to be uh, one of the attorney generals in the California Attorney General's office. Quite an accomplishment. She has a class outside of her law school uh, professorship where she teaches people, again, legal writing skills. So go to LegalWritingLaunch.com, and when you get on that website to sign up, put in the Legal Merry-Go-Round in the discount area, and you get 10% off. She's got three different classes for you to choose from. Bev Myers, thank you so much for being a sponsor, TheLegalWritingLaunch.com. Okay, well, to the show, we have, again, the concern about injured student-athletes. You know, when a a student athlete's injured, uh, we can call this the epic blame game. Who is at fault? What happened? So uh, I'll share that more often than not, 
the cases come down to lack of supervision on the part of the coaches and the schools, but there are other possibilities. Every year, every single year, over 7 million high school kids are taken uh, to the fields where they play or the basketball courts or the arenas, wherever they are, uh, trying to defend their school's title, right, or working to secure one. Many of these kids have dreams of going pro. Well, okay, good luck with that. Not too many get it, but it's a nice goal, isn't it? And so while facing pressure from their own personal goals, maybe their parents and their coaches and their team, they can often push themselves or others a bit too hard. Now, in part, this reasoning explains the variety of startling statistics about injuries surrounding America's young student athletes. Sit back and, and swallow this for a moment. This is, you know, when I did the research for this, it was just like my jaw dropped. Over three and a half million kids ages 14 and under and under receive medical treatment for sports injuries every single year. 90% of student athletes report some sort of sports-related injury. 54% of student athletes report they've played while injured. 62% of organized sports-related injuries occurred during practice. However, only a third of parents do not have their children take the same safety precautions at practice they would during a game. 21% of all traumatic brain injuries among children in the United States are associated with participation in sports and recreational activities. You know, unless you've been living under a rock, you're certainly aware of the, uh, the lawsuits about brain damage from football with the NFL and the helmets and all that. Well, 21% of our kids suffering brain injuries because of involvement with sports. That's just a number that's way too high. It should be zero, but 21%? Okay, well, um, according to the United States Centers for Disease Control, more than half of all sports injuries in children are preventable. Would you like to know which sports are the most dangerous for our kids? Well, okay, my guess is you could probably guess these, but I'm going to tell you anyway right now. Number one is football. Number two is basketball. Number three, baseball and softball. Number four, soccer. And number five, ice hockey, right? Ice hockey. Who would have thought? All right, so let's get to liability. And I'm going to share with you that I'm going to give you some cases and tell you, you know, kind of some stories about what happened to some of these kids and the compensation that they, uh, uh, they recovered uh, when lawsuits were filed against the, uh, the parties at fault. But let's get to the at fault. Once a student athlete has been injured, uh, you know, we, we need to find out um, who's responsible for causing the injuries, who's liable for covering damages incurred from the injury. Now, prior to the injury, it should be understood that playing sports obviously is not without its risks. I mean, we know that, right? And these risks are generally considered to be a normal part of the competitive school sports process. And so we get that. There's a known uh, uh, um, a defense, uh, a common defense. It's called assumption of the risk. And essentially, that means that 
willing participants in a sport usually assume certain dangers that are inherent to it as well as the responsibility for injuries that result. So as an example, if some child, some kid uh, is injured due to a fair tackle uh, during a high, uh, high school football game, the liability for medical bills and other resulting costs would fall upon the child's parents. There's nothing wrong there. Nobody did anything wrong to blame them that the kid got hurt in a routine football tackle. There is a split that is necessary for you to understand as I explain all this to you today. There is a split in where this happened, whether it's a public or a private school, because there's sports, of course, in both of those lines. Public schools are generally not liable for injuries suffered during a sports event, typically receiving compensation for high school sports teams' uh, injuries is limited due to three factors. Number one, athletic teams have been deemed a crucial part of the education curriculum. Number two, public schools are considered a government agency or federally funded agency, meaning they're shielded from sports liability. And number three, athletes and their parents usually sign a waiver containing a release clause. A release clause relieves the school liability because the participant agrees that they're assuming the risks associated with that particular sport, tackling, running, errant balls. Now, I'm going to get to all three of those because well, at least the second and the third, the uh, the crucial part of education, we understand. But I'm jumping ahead of myself. The liability for private schools differs from public schools. Private schools often set their own policies regarding sports and other extracurricular activities. So if your child is attending a private school, I encourage you <clears throat> to make 100% sure that you know what's going on and you read all the, uh, the, the documents about you know, their participation in sports so you're clear uh, what potentially could happen if your child gets hurt. All of these things, the concept of the federal funding or being a government agency in a public school setting or parents signing a release, that goes out the window when there is negligence. Okay, when schools are generally deemed not liable for student injuries, they may be found legally negligent if they fail to take reasonable precautions and supervision of students in order to prevent sports injury. In some cases, this responsibility would fall on the coach to recover compensation for injuries under a negligence theory. A parent would need to prove, again, three things. Number one, the coach or the school owed the student a duty of care. Number two, and that's pretty easy to prove most of the time. Number two, the coach breached the duty of care. Now you're going to need testimony as to what the coach was doing that he or she wasn't properly monitoring or supervising the child. Or even worse, putting the child in positions of danger. Number three, the breach of duty caused the student to suffer measurable injuries. Well, if you get number one and number two, number three is pretty clear. 
you know, young Johnny goes to school one day and he's perfectly fine. He goes to football practice and he comes home and he's got a broken leg. I think the cause and effect there is pretty easy to prove. Now, the type of negligent actions that a coach could be responsible for include failure to provide proper training, allowing unfit, injured, or players with an unfair advantage to compete. So you don't have little Johnny who's uh, 93 pounds trying to block uh, Big Billy who's uh, 195 pounds. Allowing unauthorized persons to engage in coaching responsibilities. So the coach wants to go out and uh, around the other side of the bleachers and kissy kissy with girlfriend and he tells some kid to take over the coaching responsibilities. Moving an injured athlete without proper care. And then the last one, which is kind of the same as one of the others, inadequate supervision. Now, the school itself can also be negligent if they failed to provide sufficient emergency medical care, improperly train their employees, provided teams with faulty or unsafe equipment, poorly maintained facilities, or had a lack of established school policies. In any of these situations, uh, students that are injured during a game uh, or during practice, the school can be responsible for these injuries. Schools have a duty to provide safe facilities and grounds to students. They should routinely inspect these facilities where the students' sports are taking place. Their failure to inspect properly uh, or to correct uh, issues that may be found or may be obvious uh, could very clearly be grounds for the school's liability. Now, um, supervision is, again, I think I mentioned it at the top of the show. It's one of the most fundamental duties that coaches, athletic administrators, and sports organizations owe to the kids. Uh, when a player is injured and a lawsuit results, improper supervision or a lack of supervision are among the most common charges leveled against the, the defendants, the coach, the school, what have you. Defined broadly, the duty to supervise requires coaches and other athletic administrators to exercise a reasonable amount of care for the protection of the kids under their control. The reasonable amount of care required for supervision, however, depends on a number of circumstances, as I'm sure you can appreciate, including the sport being played, the age, experience, skill, and physical condition of the participants. This is especially true when supervising minors since they can act impulsively, um, often without appreciating the possible dangers of what they're doing. If a lot of young people are involved in a dangerous activity in which they have little or no experience, the athletic association or school needs to provide more than one coach in order to control the large group and give more attention and direct instruction to all the participants. In considering if an organization has provided proper supervision, the courts can also consider whether warnings of the dangers that were inherent in the activity were provided to the, to the students, whether the coach or instructor communicated and enforced the rules of the game or activity, and whether the participants were equally matched for the sport or activity they were playing. Okay, so now I've set the framework. I'm going to take a little break. 
I'm going to come back after the break and share some real life examples as to what's happened across our country over the past decade or so and what types of injuries uh, some of these students suffered and why and what compensation was available. So the the takeaway right now is uh, you cannot be a non-involved parent if you're concerned about your child's safety. You should be at these practices, you should observe, and if you see things going on that are not appropriate, you need to stand up and speak up for your child. The last thing in the world you want is to have your child uh, maimed and decimated for the rest of his or her life because of some stupid coach that was looking at the, uh, you know, the cheerleaders or something like that. Anyway, uh, I'll be back. Don't go far. All right. So this is uh, a couple of uh, uh, real interesting, funny things that I think you're going to really enjoy. A man accused of speeding seemed, according to a judge, really anxious. And the judge says to him, is there something you want to say? And the man says, actually, yes. My wife and I are trying to have a baby and she's ovulating right now. So what could the judge say? Um, you know, the guy's charged with speeding. He says, well, thank you for sharing. Um, another case in a, in a courtroom, uh, a man standing before a judge defending himself for having parked in a handicapped spot, despite not having a sticker or visible handicap. The man claimed he'd meant to park for just a moment to go into a restaurant to bring his mother a glass of water. Uh, she was dehydrated, he explained. But when he was on his way out, he saw someone choking and felt obligated to administer the Heimlich maneuver. The only problem was that when the judge asked him how one does the Heimlich maneuver, the guy didn't have a clue. Guilty as charged. Okay, it's break time here on the merry-go-round. We want to give you value. So, do you need an attorney for an injury case or a criminal matter or something involving family law? Mr. Samico has the answer for you. Go to our podcast website, www.thelegalmerrygoround.com. Again, that's thelegalmerrygoround.com and click on the referrals tab. Then either fill out the form or call the telephone number where you can leave a detailed message that Mr. Samico will pick up and you'll get a response with a referral to an excellent attorney in your area within eight business hours. And the referral is free, no charge to you for this referral. So again, if you're looking for a lawyer that meets the highest standards, Paul is going to hook you up. And every attorney he refers to meets the highest standards, and Paul has checked them out for you. If you like what you're hearing from him during these shows, you know he's going to take care of you. So go to thelegalmerrygoround.com. And now, back to the show. Okie dokie, so we are back. I'm talking about injured student athletes and who is responsible 
for their injuries and the compensation that's appropriate for what happened to them. This isn't just the, you know, little Sally or little Johnny that tripped during, uh, uh, during soccer practice and it was their fault. This is more often than not, as I mentioned in the first half, the top of the show, uh, related to improper or uh, inappropriate supervision. So I want to get into some cases to show you the, um, the depth of this situation and how serious this really is. And remember some of the statistics that I, that I offered up uh, at the beginning of the show, 20% of our children in schools are suffering brain injuries. Half of these types of injuries, not just the brain injuries, but half of all injuries are preventable. You know, I mean, the numbers are just staggering. So again, parents, please monitor what's going on when your kids are are involved in sports, whether or not they like it that you're there or not. Oh, mom, they'll come to practice. I'll be embarrassed. Too bad. Go two or three times intermittently during the course of the year and watch to see what's going on. Okay, well, as I mentioned, a coach always has to exercise a duty to supervise. In a case in Flushing, New York, a varsity football coach wasn't supervising one of his senior players, a young man by the name of Blake Hunt, during a scrimmage. A player need Hunt in the head, snapping his head back. Hunt shattered his C5 vertebrae, that's in his neck, and was left paralyzed from the waist down. In this instance, the coach failed to supervise correctly because the victim was not ready to play. Uh, young uh, Mr. Hunt uh, wasn't strong enough to play against larger players. Uh, he had a leg injury keeping him from playing at his strongest, and he hadn't learned proper tackling techniques. All of this should be known, was known to the coach, yet coach threw Hunt in to get involved. So Hunt and his parents filed a lawsuit against the Department of Education, uh, the Parks Department, and the Public Schools Athletic League, uh, before the case could get to court, the three defendants, the lawsuit for $8 million. Okay, this is the kind of money that's involved and there are serious injuries for our youngsters in the school setting. Another school senior, Ryan Lamp, 18, was invited to participate in a wrestling practice at high school. Uh, Scott Campbell, a volunteer wrestling coach, at the school organized and ran the practice session. So during the session, Campbell, who was 43 years old and weighed 205 pounds, wrestled with Lamp, who weighed 189 pounds. So that 10, uh, 11, uh, let me see, uh, that 16 pound difference, that, that can make a difference, believe it or not. I was a wrestler and I know, you know, the uh, uh, the vagaries and the dangers of being wrestling uh, uh, with someone bigger and larger. So Lamp sustained a spinal dislocation again at C5-6 level. That's in his neck. He suffered an immediate loss of sensation from the mid-chest down and loss of movement in all four extremities, legs, arms. After extensive physical therapy, Lamp was able to maneuver a manual wheelchair and type in a limited manner on his computer. His medical bills were over $400,000, and consistent with what happens in these legal cases, uh, they 
projected what we will call uh, the cost of life care plan, the cost of the medical treatment and, and such that he will need over the remaining portion of his life. These were calculated at $12 million. While Lamp was hospitalized, he, ex he was accepted into college, the one that he wanted to go to, but because of his injuries, he had declined the offer and enrolled in a college closer to his home, graduating with an engineering degree. So he was pursuing a master's degree in architecture from that, that institution. They filed suit against Campbell, alleging that he was reckless and negligent in wrestling uh, Mr. Lamp without first determining his skill level and without providing any warm-up or instructions. The plaintiff was prepared to present expert testimony that Campbell acted recklessly and engaging in a live unsupervised wrestling match with a student he knew nothing about in failing to provide instructions on the methods to be used and in failing to consider and understand multiple mismatching factors, including age, weight, size, physical maturity, strength, technical skill, and experience. The matter settled for $3.85 million. This is, again, an astoundingly big number uh, just simply because someone didn't take precautions. You now have someone involved uh, in, in sitting in that wheelchair for the rest of their life. Another case, a 16-year-old, uh, Sean McNamee, played varsity football for his Tampa, Florida high school. Before practice one day, the players participated in a warm-up session supervised by the head coach. During a passing drill, Sean, uh, who was not yet wearing his helmet, collided with a teammate and lost his balance. As he fell to the ground, he struck his head on a line striper that had been left unattended in the practice area. The coach or trainer told Sean to go out to the locker room to get checked out. Video from the school surveillance camera showed that Sean entered the locker room holding his head and then following the trainer into the training room. The footage over the next 20 minutes showed the trainer leaving and returning to the training room several times. About 22 minutes after Sean first entered the locker room, the trainer and another adult were seen briefly re-entering the training room. After they leave, Sean's seen walking into the locker room holding a bag of ice. Minutes later, he's seen exiting the locker room and his car is seen leaving the school. More than 30 minutes later, the video shows a trainer and another coach re-enter the training and locker rooms, presumably attempting to locate Sean. At home, Sean's sister finds him semi-conscious and incoherent. His father takes him to a hospital emergency room where doctors diagnose a traumatic brain injury and performed an emergency craniotomy. The excised portion of his skull was implanted in his stomach to keep the bone tissue alive. He spent nine days in a medically induced coma and two more weeks in the hospital. About a month and a half later, he undergoes a cranioplasty in which doctors replace the excised portion of his skull and implanted a titanium plate. As a result of the injury, Sean now suffers from epileptic seizure disorder, headaches, and cognitive problems that include slowed thought processing, impaired judgment, decision-making skills, which are reduced, and short-term memory problems. Despite physical and cognitive therapy, he's been forced to abandon his plans, of course, of playing college football and joining the Marines. Because of his seizure disorder, he's unable to drive 
and must take anti-seizure medications. The parties reached a settlement in this case of $1.7 million. The board also agreed to adopt uh, something they named after him, the McNamee uh, protocol, which required it to provide additional training and instruction for employees regarding head injury prevention and the need for compliance with head injury protocols and the steps to be taken to comply with these protocols. Again, a brain injury for a college football player who's sent out there without a helmet. Again, this is just crazy. This just, these things shouldn't happen. Casey Stroh, 16, joined his high school football team. Some of the team members threw footballs at his head while he was sitting on the sidelines during practice. He went to the school nurse complaining of a headache and double vision and told her that he had been hit in the head with a football and was concerned he might have a concussion. She allegedly attempts to call his grandmother, with whom Casey lived, but was unable to reach her. Casey continues participating in team practices over the next two weeks. He also returns to the nurse with continued complaints of headaches and vision problems. The nurse calls Casey's grandmother, but allegedly only discussed a problem Casey had been having with pink eye. Several days later, while at home, Casey complained to his grandmother of headaches, neck pain, and problems with vision and balance. She took him to a hospital emergency room where imaging revealed a mass in his head. He was transferred to a different, different hospital where doctors discovered a malformation in his head, clusters of abnormally formed blood vessels in the brain. He required surgery to remove a blood clot near his brain stem, followed by extensive rehab. As a result of the bleeding and clot, Casey suffered brain damage that has affected his ability to walk. He currently uses a wheelchair or walker, but there's hope that someday he might be able to graduate to using a cane. Whoopie doo. Through his grandmother, they sued the nurse in the school district. He claims that he suffered a concussion after being hit with a football and that the injury possibly aggravated by additional damage he suffered on the field caused the pre-existing malformation in his brain to bleed. He alleges that the school nurse failed to alert the football coaches about his complaints so that he could be removed from further participation, failure to notify his grandmother of his symptoms and his need to consult a doctor and follow up with his grandmother to make sure that he saw a doctor. Had the nurse altered his, alerted his coaches and grandmother to a possible concussion after the first visit to her office, uh, potentially he could have been evaluated immediately preventing the blood clot and resulting brain damage. Well, this is a case that's settled for just under a million dollars. Um, again, these types of things are so upsetting, so unnecessary, so preventable. It just, it just boggles my mind. A public school district agreed to pay $4.4 million settlement to a former high school athlete who suffered a head injury playing high school football and who now must communicate through a keyboard. The facts in the case allege that the boys sustained a concussion in an earlier game, but the trainers responsible for his care allowed him to participate with a concussion in a later game that caused his permanent injury. At the time he was hurt, he was a high school senior and a linebacker on the school's football team. He took a prior hit to the head and the team's head coach ignored signs that he was in distress. 
according to deposition transcripts in the legal case, an assistant athletic trainer for the school reported the symptoms of a concussion were ignored. In the deposition, the assistant trainer said that a week before the injury, the young man complained to his team's athletic director about having headaches, which caused him to miss certain parts of practice. And that just a few minutes before the game, the boy asked if he could set out the first quarter because his head was hurting. But the coach said, nah, get in there, kid. After playing in the first half of the game, the high school senior, this young man, collapsed on the sidelines and he was rushed to a local hospital where doctors had to remove part of his skull to alleviate the pressure from internal bleeding. Nonetheless, the bleeding inside his brain caused extensive irreversible damage. This is just another one of these cases. This was out of Chicago where, you know, the, 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 the people in charge taking care of our kids are just not tuned in. They're just not tuned in and they need to be. Again, parents, if you have kids in school, you have to make sure that if they're involved in these athletic uh, activities that you are there watching periodically to make sure that things are going the way they should. Something that all high school football players should do before every practice and game is inspect their equipment. The helmet is a very important part of the football uniform. If the helmet doesn't fit correctly on the crown of the head, it's best to address this issue before practice or game begins. Unfortunately, many high schoolers try to be tough kids or macho, and they feel as if they can get through any type of pain. They're not intelligent enough. They don't have maturity enough to understand it. Pain that stems from the spine or brain can cause lasting injuries, including paraplegia. By getting to practice early, football players, young kids will have the opportunity to check over their equipment. It's usually the case that a high school or school district will assign football equipment, so the school district doesn't take days and weeks to make certain this equipment fits correctly. Sometimes players grab whatever equipment seems right. They may play an entire season with the wrong size shoulder pads or pants. The shoulders and legs are important parts of the body, obviously, but ultimately the brain is the most prized asset. Hopefully, parents, uh, you won't have to suffer uh, watching your child uh, being injured. But if you do, uh, you definitely want to pursue compensation. These are things that more often than not occur 100% because coach wasn't paying attention or trainer wasn't paying attention or nurse wasn't paying attention or their institutional problems involving things like facility supervision in general, facility, um, you know, the way the facility is structured, the physical environment uh, could be wrong. There's a, just any number of things. So you should definitely get, get yourself an attorney to investigate. You don't want to have the burden of, of being burned twice, as the expression goes, the injury once and then no compensation to take care of, of the problem later if and when it does happen. Thanks for giving me your ear. I really appreciate it. I hope that you have a wonderful upcoming weekend and that you join me again on Monday for my uh, the Legal Merry-Go-Round Monday edition, which is Marital Mondays, where I talk about things involving the family, domestic disputes, and this sort of thing. Uh, it, it is an honor to be able to imagine that you are really giving me a half hour or so of your time. Uh, I hold that in the highest esteem and thank you from the bottom of my heart and ask you if you'll just do me a little favor. Subscribe to my show here. 
Um, give me a review on Apple. Uh, these are things that would mean the world to me. Have a wonderful weekend. Thanks again for your ear today. Thanks for listening to The Legal Merry-Go-Round. We hope you enjoyed our show. Tune in next time to get a better understanding of real-life legal situations. Thank you.